Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. And if you find this podcast helpful in your theological rehabilitation, consider partnering with us in its production. Become a financial sponsor of That's What She Said on Patreon, a platform for supporting content you love. Thanks! Hey, church! I'm Reverend Ashley Dargai. My pronouns are she, her. You know, the disciple Peter says a lot of wild things in the Gospels. But my favorite thing that he says is, it is good for us to be here. And I feel that tonight. My spouse and I first came to Galileo in year three when we were at Red's Roadhouse. Anybody remember that? Yeah. That was great. Um, Galileo's the first place I heard a woman preach. And here I am, a bona fide preacher. Thanks be to God. It is the church that said yes to my call to ordination. It is the church where my daughter was blessed as a baby. It's a place that I have found God over and over again in all of you. It is good for us to be here. Our scripture for today is from Revelation 5, and it's best to read the book of Revelation as one entity in one sitting from beginning to end. But we're not going to do that tonight. So let me just give three disclaimers before we go, all right? First, Revelation is an apocalyptic text, which means it's dramatic AF. Okay, disciples of Christ churches, of which Galileo is a part, they don't really read a lot of apocalyptic literature. Okay, we mostly steer clear of books like Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation, in part because our strain of Protestantism likes to play nice, okay? So second, Revelation is not only apocalyptic literature, it's also a letter, and it's not a letter to us. Just like 1 Corinthians is not a letter to us, but a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, Revelation is a letter to Christians in Rome from what has been traditionally attributed to John. Now, of course, we can still get things out of 1 Corinthians, just like we can get things out of Revelation. And personally, I take comfort in the fact that those Roman Christians reading this letter for the very first time probably didn't find it any more coherent than we will. However, they were a lot more open to the wily genre of the apocalyptic. They didn't need a one-for-one literalism. They knew that God could be experienced just as readily in, a fo- in the form of a seven-eyed lamb dripping with blood than as a quaint story about Jesus feeding a bunch of people on a hillside. And third, John follows in the tradition of the biblical prophets, such as Isaiah and Jeremiah. Now, culturally, we tend to think of prophecy as like predicting the future, but that's not how prophecy functions in the Bible. Prophecy is about interpreting one's present in light of the movement of God. So, for example, the events of history can be interpreted with this worldly explanations. You know, the wind that drove back the marshy waters of the Red Sea could be seen as a lucky break for the Israelites in the form of extreme weather. But it was the prophet Moses who interpreted this event as the mighty act of God that delivered Israel from the Egyptians. And likewise, tonight... The images we will read together are not meant to predict the future, 
but rather to provoke, to invoke, to evoke, to call out the unsettled in our hearts. The images that we will encounter do not lay things plain so much as they stir things up. Now, all apocalyptic literature deals with duality and binaries, yes or no, this or that views of the world. Obviously, we know here that we are not beholden to binaries. Rarely are things so clear-cut. However, this drama of the duality is not meant to be a commentary on our lives, but instead to plunge us into a magical, often terrifying world so that we can see our world with renewed imagination. Okay, disclaimers made. Let's read this text now. We can do it together. We go. Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God, saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands singing with full voice. Worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. There's this animated kids movie called Penguins of Madagascar. Has anybody seen it? It's a good one. Uh, the plot is not important for our time today, but I'm about to do the annoying thing where I explain a scene to you, okay? The opening scene puts us in a faux nature documentary about penguins. The narrator begins, Antarctica an inhospitable wasteland. We find life, and not just any life, penguins. Joyous, frolicking, waddling, cute, and cuddly life. And as he says this, you see a herd of penguins following mindlessly behind their leader. 
and the narrator calls them silly little snow clowns. And at the end of the line, we see three young penguins, and one of them asks, does anyone know where we're marching to? Who cares, an adult penguin responds. I question nothing, another adds. And then all of a sudden, an egg rolling downhill bowls them over, and these three penguins follow the egg to the edge of the cliff, and the, the, the egg goes over, and the penguins peer over the edge, and they wonder about its fate. And at this point, we remember that we're watching a faux nature documentary because the camera zooms out and we see the documentary crew who are filming the penguins. And the narrator overlays, the babies are frozen with fear. They know if they fall from this cliff, they will surely die. And then, after a pause, the narrator says, Gunter, give them a shove. And Guter, the sound guy, swings his boom mic to the whack the penguins over the cliff, and they fall. It's a children's movie, so they survive for more shenanigans. But that opening scene is a fascinating commentary on humanity's role in the world, isn't it? Now, very few of us have actually seen a penguin in the wild, yet we are their greatest threat. What we do as a collective impacts not only penguins, but also most of creation. Bees, sea turtles, the redwoods, sea levels, air quality, you name it. How we inhabit this world is drastically affecting how long we and other parts of creation will be able to inhabit it. Gunter, give them a shove. Personally, I spent a lot of time thinking about mortality. I'm super fun at parties. <laughs> but because of my hyperfixation on the end of all things, my imagination is trained to see death and decay everywhere. It's a pair of glasses I have on all the time, seeing how the world, and specifically our culture, interacts with the realest thing about us, which is that we all die. If you're wondering how our culture interacts with death, it mostly lives in denial. We are Western first world, 21st century Christians, and we're surrounded by messages that essentially gaslight us. Though death and decay can be found at every level of life, we are sold the lie that we can live forever. Use this face serum and your sadness will not leave a mark. Eat this superfood salad and your body will never do anything embarrassing or disappointing. Join this CrossFit cult, I mean gym, and you will be strong enough to move all of your heartache to the side. Get a Peloton bike, and maybe you'll be able to outpace your crippling despair. Invest in this stock, and you'll never feel lack again. Secure this retirement account, and hopelessness will never touch you in your old age. Now, the danger in these things is not the activities themselves, but the belief that they will somehow insulate us from pain and suffering, that we will be protected from the fate of humans. But our coming to an end is the one certain thing about us. We will all take a final breath, and yet so much money is spent on keeping us from believing it. So it's even harder to deal with catastrophic, head, a catastrophic ending head on be it climate change or death, because we're always being sold the idea that we will never die, that there is more than enough for everyone's greed, even as the collateral damage of that narrative piles higher and higher every day. 
but thankfully, there are other voices that call out to us. We have an ancient, sacred text that invites us into a different imagination. The prophetic voices of scripture spoke initially to people living in the Iron Age, who were used to burying beloveds far more frequently than we do. High infant mortality, low life expectancy, natural disasters that killed without discrimination, disease and dysentery were common, healthcare was primitive. In ancient Rome, life was cheap. And though these prophetic voices were speaking to someone else, perhaps they can still speak to us today. The apocalyptic literature that we read gives us a way to come at a few things sideways that we can kind of scoot into. So let's step into this apocalyptic vision. There are a few mystical creatures in our text today. Our mighty angel probably did not have dainty wings like a cherub. There are undescribed creatures, so it's up to your imagination what they are. But most affronting is the lamb with seven eyes and seven horns dripping with blood as if it has been slaughtered. It's like a horror movie. And the mighty angel is looking around because the one on the throne with a scroll in his hand is wondering if there is someone worthy to open it. This is a question that's been asked in scripture before. Is there anyone worthy? And in this case, there isn't, not yet. And John weeps at this fact. We won't get into what the scroll says because that's outside of our purview this evening, but it's end of the world stuff for a people in crisis. Not just anybody can read it. And no one is worthy to do so until the lamb enters. But the Alice in Wonderland twist in this vision is that it's not a lamb that we're looking for because the elders have said, behold, the lion of Judah, the conqueror. And so when we turn our heads with John in this vision, looking for the king of the pride lands, the mighty predator of the plains, we are shocked to see instead a lowly prey who looks as if it's already been hunted by our predator. And it is this battered lamb that is worthy to open the scroll, which feels in contradiction to how I sometimes think about the end of the world. It's certainly different than the end times theology I grew up with. I might have assumed that in the case of which comes first, the lion or the lamb, the lamb would come first. Love would be a provisional strategy of the earthly Jesus to accomplish God's purposes. But eventually, when everyone had had their chance and love had not worked, the transcendent eschatological violence of the lion would replace it and take care of God's business with force and violence. But that's not what this vision implies. The lamb does not accomplish God's purposes by killing others, but by being killed by them. This goes against all respectable virtues of how the world works, how empire functions. And if John had any question about what he was seeing, that it was a real lamb in place of a lion, this image of the slain lamb is affirmed by four creatures, 24 elders who are holding in their hands bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, whatever that is. And in case you missed it, that's like the backing of every single person who has lived. And then more creatures and more elders and more angels that numbered myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands singing, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered. To the one seated on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and power, blah, blah, blah. 
This vision is not meant to be solved like a puzzle, but it's meant to puzzle us. We're not trying to decode what is happening as much as attempting to encounter God in the jarring and the mysterious. There are many things in our world that can make it feel like the end. I know that there are people older than me who say the world has always felt this way. With the world wars, the nuclear threats, Y2K, bad things have always happened and caused hysteria. But to be honest, I bristle at this response. I bristle at the idea that older generations tell younger generations to have hope and do the right thing when it comes to the earth because we are inheriting the dumpster fire they helped create or at least ignored for decades. It irritates me to have my head padded when the ones patting my head will die before the worst of climate change sets in. It angers me to hear the terror and despair I feel minimized and dismissed simply because bad things have happened before. And perhaps that's why I'm so drawn to apocalyptic literature, because they feel appropriately dramatic and urgent. They match the terror I feel. And perhaps that's why I find it so affronting and absurd that a slain lamb is somehow a harbinger of hope. In this vision, we see something completely ridiculous about the divine imagination. That what feels like the end, what looks like death in all its forms, what is as fearsome as a lion waiting to pounce, is actually somehow a revealer of light and love. This letter, this book of Revelation, begins by giving glory to Jesus, who loves us unto death. And the Gospel of John tells us that John was with God, or Jesus was with God in the beginning of everything, that all of life was created in him and with him, so that we were made in love, for love, by love, with love. And love was the beginning of us all. And here, eons later, on an earth that groans with warning signs and last-ditch efforts to save itself, even here in our moments of despair, whether they be our own end, the end of our loved ones, or the end of our world, there is love still. We are, in fact, bookended by love. It hems us in front and from behind. It tucks us in tightly the way I tuck my daughter in each night. It is as sealed as the scroll the one on the throne holds, and it is opened to us by opened up to us all by the only one worthy to open it. This Eastertide series leading up to Galileo's birthday is imagining what Galileo will look like in the future. Ten years from now, 40 years from now, 127 years from now. And I'm imagining Galileo Church at the end of the world which is kind of a cop-out on my part because who knows when that is, right? The world could end tomorrow or it could end a thousand years from now. And of course, that timeline is determined by what we define as the world. But I've been wondering what Galileo looks like at the end of everything. You know, the big C church has died a couple of times in history. Even the church has some kind of expiration date. 
But something funny always happens on the way to the funeral. And what was declared dead ends up living long enough to bury its pallbearers. It's not that we live forever, not in the way that we're sold by capitalism or some iterations of Christianity. But perhaps when we're thinking about the end of the world, it's that life is defined differently. I should back up a little, because I want to return to this weird bowl of incense. The elders in this vision hold a bowl of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, the great cloud of witnesses, the communion of the saints, our ancestors in faith, our spiritual kin. And the church remembers these people on holy days like All Saints Day, and it is implied every time we gather around the table. And this bowl of incense does not give us a theological treatise on immortality or saving the world or even basic morality. That's not the purpose it's serving here, though that would be helpful. Rather, these prayers of those who have gone before us are perhaps meant to waft over us. Their smoky tendrils, perhaps, are meant to evoke our own delicate tethers to one another and to life. They snake their way up to our nostrils to remind us of a love that is longer than any of us, transcending death and reminding us that this love that seems so fragile is actually quite resilient. And perhaps this love is so strong because it is so very tender. Perhaps it seems to know no end because it has truly known ending. Perhaps it is not scared of what we are scared of because it has faced the scariest thing of all. These prayers of the saints carry us along on this love in our most trying times, into the most sober reality of our future, however long or short it may be. What does Galileo look like at the end of the world? I've got a secret for you. You, beloveds of God, in this very room and watching online, are also saints. Your prayers, be they heavenly fathers or making casseroles or bouncing babies or signing people up to vote or living as your true God-given self, add to the prayers and history that have carried us to this moment. And your prayers, dear saints, will help carry the church in whatever iteration it may be until the very end. The love you affirm and proclaim each day, each moment, will testify until the end of the world, until the very end of all of us. Mortality glasses are not as grim as they seem to be because they help us discern what really matters. They help us see, the ro see through the rose-colored bullshit and see what's as real as death. And it's true that humanity and its many sins have had dire and devastating consequences on the world around us. Gunter, give them a shove. But it's also true that our prayers, our work on behalf and through this absurd love, have its own consequences. Their scent pierces the stench of death with a hope that doesn't make sense and yet lives 
outlives us all. So I don't know how the world will end or when it'll end. But I do know that our end looks like our beginning. It's not a predator of force that will greedily consume us. But rather, it is a lamb who bears the marks of a resilient love. The end, it looks like love. Don't stop believing it. Amen. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. If what you've heard is helpful, consider becoming a patron of its production by joining our subscribers on Patreon. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and support the people who love them. We do kindness around mental health and mental illness, and we celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support our missional priorities, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Share With Us. You'll have options to contribute through Venmo, PayPal, or your bank account. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace. Peace.